start. If you got your Bible, if you'd open to Exodus chapter 26, we'll begin reading in verse 31. Lord willing, we're going to intervene next week and go back and have a brief review from start to finish up to where we are now before we move to the Ark of the Covenant. There's some things that I'd like to tie together. And there's a couple of things and a couple of pieces of furniture that I'd like to go back that we did not touch on that I feel like are important. And then after that, we'll move into the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And from there, we'll go to the priest and the dress that he wore. The, not a lady's dress, but the outfit that he wore. Uh, got a tremendous amount of teaching in that and uh, illustrated truth for the New Testament. We're looking at the veil. We're interrupting a little bit on the furniture. We've gone through the golden uh, altar of incense last week, which sat right before the veil. But we need to interrupt and keep it in a you know running manner. And I put this together today because I wanted to put this cover on it. This is the inside cover over the tabernacle. Of course, there's three others. There is the, uh, the, the two inside and then the old uh, badger skin outside that, you know, you look at it and you say nothing in him to be desired. But uh, all these colors tied together, and you can see it's made out of white and blue and purple and red. Then we've got the outer veil that is made of the same colors, and the four colors have distinct teaching in them and the inner veil between the holy place and the holy of holies so when you were inside all that was in there was gold now this veil right here I won't take it off but it had some gold cherubims woven into it I couldn't figure out how to do that you know I was lucky to get these veils put together but uh, you can imagine inside of it, the glory of the Lord shone brightly in there. And the testimony that testified of our Lord Jesus Christ, the whole inside of it testified to that. You know, I try to look back, I'm sure you do from time to time, and imagine what it would have been like to have lived in the Old Testament, Brother Gerald. You know, the Bible says over in 1 Peter, they desired to look into these things. It's one thing for you and I to know all the truths concerning Christ and look back and we've seen them develop and we've got a New Testament. They didn't have that. All they had was these symbols and I can just imagine that even up to the high priest, no doubt he went through the service that God gave him to do and into the Holy of Holies. And I can't believe, but Brother Paul, he must have thought, what is this all about? Because he didn't see the whole picture. Thank God we got the whole picture today. Amen. So we're going to look at that inner veil. The one, let me just take this off. You can all, you know what the cover is. The, the veil between the holy place and where God said, I'll meet with you, the holy of holies. Blue, red, purple, and white. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine line twinning, that fine twine linen of cunning work. I looked up that word cunning work. It meant these men were specially gifted by God to make these veils, the inner and the outer veil. <clears throat> With cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of sheetam wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches. 
that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy and thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place and thou shalt set the table without the veil and the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and thou shalt put the table on the north side so that basically those five verses give us a description about that veil <clears throat> Before we go into looking at the colors and what they represent and tying it together with the New Testament, uh, let's look at a couple of things about that veil. <clears throat> Number one, that veil that uh, is hanging between this holy place and the Holy of Holies is a clear New Testament picture of the type of the, of the body of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us pretty clearly what that veil represents. <clears throat> and, and of course, you know, this is this, we'll look at this in a minute. This separated between the priest, he only came into this veil one time a year and ministered inside the holy place where God said, I'll meet with you there. Any other Israelite was not allowed in this holy place. They could not go past that veil. If they did, God said, you'll die. Thank God that's not true today. Amen. <clears throat> Look in Hebrews 10, 19. <clears throat> Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, let's, that's what we're just talking about. You and I today in the New Testament... We have the boldness to enter in through that veil, which is the body of Christ, into where we can personally meet with God. God even invited us. You remember, we'll look at another scripture later. He said, "Come, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Verse number 20. How do we do that? By a new and living way, which he had consecrated for us through the veil. Watch now. That is to say, his flesh. That veil pictures the body of Christ that he sacrificially gave in my place, in your place, to open the way for you and I to come to, to, to the, into the glory of God and boldly come there and sit down and have prayer or conversation and make supplication with God. Sad the New Testament saints couldn't do that. I mean, I'm sorry, the Old Testament saints couldn't do that. They didn't have access to that. The New Testament, the, the, the Old Testament priest came in and made an atonement for them once a year for the sins of the people, and that was covered till next year. But those Israelites would not dare to go inside of that veil in that holy place. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now there's tremendous pattern of prayer in there, and we'll be back to that at the end of the lesson if we can get that far today. 
But number one, the first thing I want us to see is that veil represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that he gave as a sacrifice for you and I to pay that sin debt. He came in through his own blood so to speak, on the mercy seat, was sprinkled there before God. And when he did that, we'll look at the lesson later on, it said God rent the veil from top to bottom and opened the way for you and I to come boldly to the throne of grace. What a privilege. You want me to repeat that? What a privilege. Isn't it sad that we avail ourselves so little of that privilege? That we've got an invitation to come boldly into the throne and, and find the glory of God. And he sits down and listens to us. Whew. That's hard for me to imagine, Brother Gerald, knowing how bad I am. And how, I, I can only imagine how holy he is. You and I can't imagine the holiness of God. But... Uh, you know, and again, that veil hid the glory of God from all the Israelites. And you know, in that aspect, the glory of God is still not totally revealed to you and I. Jesus Christ declared the glory to us. He said, he that has seen me have seen the Father. But nobody has ever seen the full glory of God other than three men that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were astonished and appalled when the Lord Jesus opened it up and they saw Jesus Christ in his full glory. We'll see him like that one day. But we still, right now, we look, what the Bible say, we see through a glass darkly. We can picture what God's like through Jesus Christ when he was here in the form of a man. Now let's look. The, pit, the, the veil is a type of the body of Christ. Also, I put this in. <clears throat> I don't think anybody here has any questions about this. It's a picture of salvation by grace. Listen to me now. Not of works. Got so many people. I know some Christians that somehow subconsciously they say, well, I got to live a good life. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to have good works. Look over in Hebrews chapter 9, just one page back. I think you'll see this. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. <clears throat> the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Talk about the tabernacle of Moses which was a figure of the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in the meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. Now watch. But Christ. Did y'all get the picture there in 8, 9, and 10? They said that was temporary. That was not something that was eternal. That was something they had to do over and over and over and over again. And it said dependent, it was dependent on all these things. But now verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, talking about the building of the tabernacle, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but now watch, watch how he obtained eternal life for you and I. But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. What happened? 
having obtained eternal redemption for us. That totally eliminates any works whatsoever to get saved or to stay saved. He went in the, through there in his body. He presented his own blood on the mercy seat to God the Father and said the debt's paid. And God said, I like it. God said, I like it. I'm pleased with it. And when he did that, he had, he obtained eternal redemption for me forever and all eternity minus nothing plus nothing thank God I don't have to have good works now we ought to have good works don't misunderstand me but we ought not to ever do good works in order to stay saved we ought to do good works in order to show our thanksgiving to God and to be a blessing to other people and show that I, I never did. I read one time 30, 40 years ago. I don't remember now. I was reading a book by uh, Hudson Taylor in China. When he, when he got born again, he said, God, please let me do something to show you that I really love you. And I'm not just talking words. And I said that day, God, let me do something. And I'm sure that's the prayer of every one of you in here today. We ought to do good works to show God that we love him. We do appreciate, we are thankful that he obtained. But it's a picture of eternal salvation by grace when he went through that veil. The Lord Jesus went through the veil, not the priest. And he obtained salvation for us. And you know, this is just hypothetical, but I've read a number of Jewish commentaries and the people like Josephus. None of them have any questions, but when that veil on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified in the temple, in the, the veil was in the temple at that time, not in the tabernacle, those priests repaired it and put it back up there. That's called Galatianism. What Paul said about that type of gospel, he said, if any man preach any other gospel than that which is preached, let him be accursed. And some people today are still trying to sew that veil back up together and work their way to get through it. Am I communicating with y'all? I can picture those priests. They couldn't imagine what happened. They didn't understand what was going on. They were lost. They sewed that veil back together and hung it back up there. <laughs> and I might have done the same thing when I was lost. You know, I said, man, that's terrible. But uh, the veil in the new tabernacle in heaven is still parted for you and I today. So it's a picture of the type of the body of Christ. It's a picture of the salvation of grace, of salvation by grace and not in any works whatsoever to be saved or to stay saved. Now let's look at the pattern of the veil. Already touched on the heavens and we'll look at the colors in them. God said make them this way. Make it blue, scarlet, purple, and white. Let's look at the colors quickly first. <clears throat> the blue speaks of Christ being heavenly. Uh, we won't go through all of these texts, but if you want to look at them in John chapter, 13, John chapter 3, verse 13. And I think all of you know this, so we won't expound on this uh, as far as all these other verses. But they're on here if you want to look at them later. Or maybe you're, one day I'll be teaching some of this. It'll read better if I get out of Luke and get in John, won't it? John chapter 3 and verse 13 
And no man hath ascended to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is heaven. So the blue, not only in these two veils, but the blue in this covering that covered everything else, everything spoke of Christ as being the heavenly Son of God that came down and descended to us here, took on the form of a man, he came down from heaven. Then uh, the scripture says, uh, make it of purple. What does purple speak of? Purple speaks of royalty. Royalty. It speaks of him being the king of kings. And I've got a number of scriptures down here. Luke chapter 1 verse 26 said he will sit on the throne of his father David and his kingdom will be forever. Uh, Matthew 2 2 uh, he said he's born there is born unto you this day a king okay? uh, you can look all these scriptures up for time's sake I don't think anybody needs to today but when he was crucified in Matthew 27 verse 29 they mocked him and they said hell king of the Jews but later on in the same chapter in chapter 27 when he was crucified they nailed a sign up on top of the cross said king of the Jews and even Pilate recognized somehow, some way. Uh, and in Revelation 19 and verse 16, he's going to do what? He's going to come back and he's going to rule and reign. And Revelation 19, 16 says, and his kingdom will be forever and forever. Thank God we're going to be here and be part of it. I don't know what part, but we're going to be here. Hello, good, good to see you, Brother Richard. And he'll rule as king when he comes back to this earth. So the blue speaks of Christ being heavenly. The purple speaks of his royalty. as He's a king. The blood speaks of the suffering of God. The, the, the scarlet speaks of the blood that was shed. Uh, that's made clear to us in a number of scriptures. We'll look real quick in Romans chapter 5 verse 19. You can go back and look up all these scriptures, but they all just simply testify to the fact that uh, these colors all have a significance to them. Romans 5 and verse number 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood. And you and I have seen that all through the scriptures during this study, particularly in the book of Hebrews. It's always through the blood, through the blood, through the blood. Of course, it's, it speaks of, when you speak of shedding of blood, you have to speak of suffering. And we'll tie this together in just a minute. And then the white portion of the, of the uh, veil speaks of him being without spot and blemish. It's also a picture symbolizing the purity of the saints over in Revelation chapter 19. Has anybody got any questions about those four colors and what they speak of, what they symbolize? We'll go back and read all these if you want to. The heavenly speak, the, the blue speaks of Jesus Christ being what? Heavenly. The, the, the purple speaks of Jesus Christ being royalty. The uh, red speaks of Jesus Christ, bloodshed and suffering. The white speaks of Jesus Christ, sinless Son of God. Now, it hung on these four columns made of wood and gold, setting on silver sockets, picturing redemption. And God said, hang it from those four pillars. Those four pillars picture the four Gospels. And you'll see now all of this ties together. You, I don't, you probably, some of you got this written in your Bible. Years ago when I was going to Memphis Baptist College, uh, somebody taught me this. I forgot who it was, but I've noted it in my Bibles through the years. The four Gospels picture those four colors. 
And if you want to go through, it, this will help you if you'll make a note of it. Now, it's on here, but I have gone through and written it. I didn't in this one. This is a new Bible. But I've written it over the heading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, those four are all giving one account of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they all saw, not that they saw, the Holy Spirit of God use them to present it in four different ways. And if you go back and look at it, the book of Matthew, you can write over that, King of Kings. Matthew presented the Lord Jesus as King of Kings. You'll read it through there again and again in the scriptures. And he was presenting these four elements that was prophesied back in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. Then you go to the book of Mark. Mark, the entire book of Mark, you'll see it through there again and again and again. talks about the suffering Savior. How he suffered, how he bled, how he died. And, he, and he's presented and magnified that element of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the book of Luke speaks of the virgin-born, sinless, pure Son of God. How he was sinless, had no marks, no blemish, no sin nature. The whole book of Mark, if you read it and look for it, you'll start to see that he presents Christ in that element of his life. And then John, how does John present him? John presents him as deity. As God in the flesh. He took on the form of a man. And was made flesh. So those four posts. Picture the four gospels. They match up with the four colors. That's in the veil. Again I can only imagine what these men. When they were sowing these men that God gifted. And the men that built all this tabernacle. They thought what does all this mean? We can look back. And see that God was giving a picture. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he was going to be like. What he was going to do. The whole picture of the New Testament is right here. If you don't put it together. Let me move on and see if we can maybe get through with... Uh, of course, you all know the position of... Of course, the cherubims. Don't leave out the cherubims. The cherubims that were interwoven on that veil, and I don't know where they was. It does not tell us, but it does say that they were on there. I, I, it's hard to find a whole lot of information about the cherubims. They were first mentioned over in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. But all the indications are is they were a huge, fierce bird in that day. And they were very, very, very protective of their space, whatever you want to call it. And God used them as gold, as, as heavenly, to guard the holiness of God. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 6. I got too far along. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. If you study that, the seraphims and the cherubims were, were, were the, basically the same bird. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto the other. Now they're sitting on the sides of the, of, the, of the throne of God. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Those, cher those cherubims represented the holiness of God and they guarded and protected the holiness of God and made it manifest to anybody that came around and came close that they were the guardians of the holiness of God. And on that element, they were guarding any Israelite to come through and come into the presence of a holy God because they had not gone through the sacrificial offering that you and I have gone through and had the debt paid for them at that time and they didn't see that. I don't understand all that, but nevertheless. But then that's the position of the veil. You know, this veil was not an entranceway for the Israelites. This was a this was a veil to keep them from getting into the glory of God. Now God has made a way for you and I today in the New Testament. But let's look real quickly here just at the parting of the veil. There's some people that deny this too. Look in Matthew chapter 27. We got enough time to cover this. There are some people out there that call themselves Bible scholars that are just false prophets. They deny all of this. But Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 and 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now, if you look back in verse number 45, 46, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all of the land of the earth. Somebody tell me what the sixth hour is. Hmm? Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock in the morning. That's when their day started. But it was the sixth hour was nine o'clock. And about the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., no, I'm sorry. The sixth hour was noon. The day started at, their day started at six in the morning. The sixth hour was noon and the ninth hour was three o'clock. And he said, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachia. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At the very time that our Lord Jesus was crucified, nailed on a cross, and died, God rent the veil at 3 o'clock at the same time while he was on the cross when he cried out, and he rent the veil from top to bottom. If man had rent the veil, he'd have torn it from bottom to top. That bell was 15 feet high. It was 60 feet long. I couldn't make it 60 feet long, but it was all, you know, woven up and twisted and pulled together like a giant bell. Josephus and, some, and David Levy, some of the Jewish historians, they're both Jewish men, they said that veil was the, what was a hand, man's span of his hand wide, about four inches, and they said it weighed so much that to raise it up and stretch it out and hang it on those four posts, it took approximately 300 priests to get it up because of the weight of it. It was a woven veil, four, foot wide, four inches wide, 60 foot long, 15 foot high. <coughs> And God rent it from top to bottom without any problem whatsoever. Now again, if man had done that, he'd have rented from the bottom to the top. But, uh, you know, Matthew makes it clear that God rent the veil. It was rent in the temple from top to bottom. And it was rented in, in the exact same time that our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when he did, he opened to us a new and a living way 
we got about one minute. Let me just comment on it. It's on your notes, but when we come through that veil and come into the presence of God, if you'll look quickly back in Hebrews chapter 10, I think this is important. God gave us four things about coming through that veil and coming into the presence of God about prayer that we ought to exercise still today in our commitment to the Lord. It's fourfold. We just look at them quickly. Uh, he said, let us draw near with a true heart. We ought to come into the presence of God with all our sins confessed. And we ought to have a clean heart when we draw near unto God. Wash with pure water. Then second, he said, in verse number 23, he said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. When we go to the Lord in prayer, we ought to have it settled in our heart and our soul and our mind that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we ask or face. And he said, Don't ever let your faith waver because God don't make no mistakes and God's able to answer every prayer. And whatever he answers it, it'll be for your good, for the good of the cause of Christ and the good of everybody concerned. Then number three, we ought to go to God in prayer with a clean heart. Go to God in faith knowing that God is going to hear our prayer and the Holy Spirit's going to intervene according to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to intervene according to the will of God and it's going to work together for good. And then number three, verse number 24, and let us consider one another to what? Provoke unto love and to good works. Brother, if we're right with God in our prayer life, we ought to be right with one another here at Eastside Baptist Church and I ought to be provoking you to good works and to love one another. And other members of this church ought to be provoking you and me to love one another as we ought to love one another and stop criticizing one another and criticizing everything that everybody does about buying chandeliers when we need lights. <coughs> Amen. You're welcome. <laughs> be amazing if we can get a church running according to the testament according to the precepts of the new testament and then number four and not least in number 25 he said not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together i think i shared with you this before i looked up and studied that word forsaking it means god said don't you forsake meeting together as a, as a group of believers on an appointed time on the Lord's Day for some other place that you want to go. Amen. Listen to me now. The word forsaking is only found two times in the New Testament. Anybody know where the other one is? Same Greek word. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 where the Lord Jesus said, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. I thought about that Johnny when I realized there wasn't but two words there that transferred from the Greek word. I can't pronounce it but that's the only two places it's used from the Greek word. I think God's, God's more faithful at not forsaking us than we are forsaking him. Oh, yeah. We'd be in bad shape <laughs> if he treated us like we treat him. Amen. I know you don't like that but nevertheless <laughs> good for us. Amen. Alright. Thank God that we've got access and the Lord Jesus allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Does everybody see the picture that God 4,000 years ago gave us a picture of all the New Testament truth. Let me ask you this. Just 
uh, one of the one of the people sitting here in his class this morning was talking to me this week, and they and it was, he brought up. I didn't bring it up. He brought up about the study of the tabernacle. He said one thing. He said I've learned a lot, but he said one thing. He said now I read the scriptures and I see things a lot clearer because they fit together. Are you seeing that? Like I said before, if you read the Gospels and keep in mind they're talking about the Jewish economy, and if you read Hebrews and keep in mind they're talking about the tabernacle particularly, all of it seems to come and say, whoo, that's what that means. It did for me.